This is Who Makes a Podcast. Conversations with your favorite podcast hosts about who they are, the shows they make, and why they make them. I'm your host, Chris Cookley, and my guest today is Graham Cochran. Graham is a business coach, YouTuber, and host of the Graham Cochran Show podcast, where each week he teaches people how to grow their online business, work less, and give more to the things and people they care about. As a lifelong musician and audio engineer, Graham founded his first online business, The Recording Revolution, in 2009 during the Great Recession as a blog and YouTube channel dedicated to teaching musicians how to record professional-sounding music at home on a budget. The Recording Revolution now has more than 600,000 students tuning in from every single country in the world, is a million-dollar-per-year business, and requires less than five hours of work per week. In 2018, Graham launched GrahamCochran.com as a new resource dedicated to helping people build online income streams around their knowledge, passions, and skills. He's been featured in HuffPost, Yahoo, and Business Insider. Graham, welcome to Who Makes a Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Glad to be here. Definitely. I'm super excited about this interview. Your podcast is one that I listen to every single week it comes out. I've been listening to your stuff and and following your stuff, honestly, since uh, Simply Recording, which was a podcast that you did with your friend Joe Gilder. So it's been a number of years that uh, you've been on my radar. But for my listeners who may not know about you, uh, could you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from originally, where you live now, how you got there, anything like that? Yeah, I'm in Tampa, Florida these days. I've been here about ooh, almost 13 years now, which is crazy. But I moved around a lot as a kid. I was an army brat, so I'm, I always say I'm from nowhere. <laughs> so <laughs> I adopted Tampa a decade and a half ago as my home. Um, love it here. Uh, I've got a wife and two children. My wife's name is Shay, and I have two daughters, Chloe and Vera. They're age 12 and 9. Uh, and man, we, we love living in Florida and I'm just grateful to have a business that's allowed me to spend time with them. What did you do? You have a, a, your podcast, obviously the Graham Cochran show, which is why you're on this podcast. What did you do before podcasting? Uh, I mean, I, I stumbled into online business in 2009 at a necessity and I was blogging and I had a YouTube channel for a number of years. And then you, you referenced the simply recording podcast. That was the first podcast I was ever a part of. And I co-hosted it with a friend. Um, and that was because he was into podcasting and wanted to do something. And I never, I didn't even listen to podcasts, let alone do one. So I probably started that two or three years after my foray into content creation. And that was, that was the Simply Recording podcast with Joe Gilder, which I, I can't find anymore. Has that been taken down? Probably. You have to blame him. He hosted and took care of all the technical <laughs> stuff. So I blame Joe. All right. Well, I'll, I'll let Joe know. You went through a, a rough period of time, maybe 12 years ago, 11 years ago, or maybe longer, actually longer than that now, uh, the Great Recession. So you lost your job. Uh, we're on welfare for what, 18 months, something like that. If you had never lost your job, were never on welfare, never forced into that horrible place, but instead had continued to just be fine and were comfortable, do you think that you would be where you are now with your podcast and your business and everything that you have going on? Do you think that people need dark days of some sort to, uh, some sort of pain maybe to accomplish something that's truly transformational? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, for me, I for sure would not be where I am without those dark days. And that's only because I was not a risk taker. I was not very entrepreneurial at all. So I, I it wasn't in the cards for me to say, hey, I want to start this thing one day. Like I I wasn't looking for business advice. I wasn't looking like I I tell people I picked up Tim Ferriss's monumental work, the four hour work week, literally the year it came out in 2007 yeah. on a lunch break from my corporate day job that I hated. I snuck over to Barnes and Noble and, and bought this book because I wanted a four hour work week instead of a 40 hour <laughs> work week. Like that's why he sold so many copies of that darn book. Yeah. It was a great title. Yeah. Great title. And so I, I read that book and it, it seemed like a fairy tale to me. I was like, I don't know. I don't want to have to like come up with a business idea and, and test ideas. So I just returned the book because I, my personality just wanted safety. 
and certainty. Um, and I just couldn't wrap my head around creating something out of nothing. So I think for me, I, I needed to be pushed to the edge of like, oh crap, I have to figure something out to, to do it. I don't think everybody needs to though, because I've certainly come across people that I've met when I, when I get their story, uh, successful entrepreneurs that I respect, I realize that some of these people, like they were born to do this stuff. I was not <laughs> like they, they, they had the vision for, Oh, I wonder if I could do this or I wonder if I could do that. And they're a little more comfortable in the uncomfortable I'm growing in that. I'm learning how to do that, but that's certainly not my nature. So I for sure needed a recession and to be humbled by having to take, you know, handouts from the government that I needed that to, to get me started. You teach in your business and on your podcast, how to build an online business and how to, how to create income based on your knowledge. And you're starting something right now today, actually, as we're recording this episode called the five day six figure challenge. So how does something like that play into your business and how is that relation to your business also tied into your podcast? I guess, how is the podcast that you make in this challenge, maybe that you're starting today linked or does one enable the other? Is that something um, anyone with a podcast could think about doing something similar to that? Yeah, it's a great question. So the challenge is a way to launch a product or in my, in my case, reopen the doors to my membership. So I have a, a membership community called uh, Graham six figure coaching community. And so it's for online business owners who want to scale to six figures or more in their business. And they want coaching from me every month. They want new training every month and they want a community of like-minded people. And so I open the doors to that twice a year. And what I'm doing right now is using a five day challenge model to basically be pre-launch content to open the doors to that membership. So if you have a podcast, that's like your front-facing public free content. That's what you're building your audience with. That's where people are getting to know you and get value. And so like a, a five-day challenge is a great next step for those podcast listeners to sign up for something for free still where they're going to be able to come hang out with you live for five days. And you're going to be able to teach them more in-depth answer their questions, have some accountability, have some hype and fun over a five-day period. So they're going to get a lot out of it if you open up a challenge or something similar. And then on the back end of that challenge, you you should ideally transition into something that you want to sell. It could be a course, could be like, I'm reopening my membership. You could use it just to open up coaching packages for one-on-one -on -one coaching clients and say, hey, if you've enjoyed working with me in this challenge, would you like to work with me one-on-one? -on -one? I've got three open slots for coaching. Let me know, sign up here or apply for a mastermind or a group coaching program, whatever you want. It's a great segue into selling something because you're kind of taking them from a casual podcast listener to work with me more in depth for a week and get a ton of value for free from me. And then you extend the offer to buy something and you're going to get some super fans who want to dive deeper with you. How's the turnout been for you on that as you've started that this week? Yeah, it's been great. So we just today, like we're recording, like you said, this is day one of the challenge and registrations were, were great. I think I had like 1,200, 1,300 people register before we went live this morning. Um, and there were probably three or 400 people live at the first session today. So I've never done a five-day challenge. So it's a pretty good conversion, right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's going to be spread out over five days and you're going to have people who can come on certain days. You're going to have people who can't even come live. They're going to catch the replay. Um, the great thing is that there is a replay for people who register. So at some point, those 12, 1300 people are going to get this content, um, be able to interact with it and hopefully get so much value out of it that when I pitch the membership, they're going to be like, they really will consider, man, this would be great to be able to work with Graham more closely. Yeah, that's a that's a great idea there. Um, you started the Graham Cochran brand as a YouTube channel, not as a podcast, just like you started the Recording Revolution as a YouTube channel, uh, which is your other highly successful business. But there is no podcast for the Recording Revolution, as far as I could tell. So what was the trigger that led you to make a podcast for the Graham Cochran brand? Yeah, I think it was two things. I think a, I had a lot of people asking me to do a podcast. Uh, there was a, gr a growing number of, of my fans who are podcast listeners and were very interested in that format for me. And then I got interested in the podcast format as a creator because I was getting a little tired of having to teach things and edit them down to a tight 10, 15 minute video. Although I can do that, I've been doing that for years. I'm very comfortable 
going on the long form route and teaching something more in depth, having an opportunity. If I had more time, if I had a 30 minute block of time or 45 minute block of time, I feel like I could cover more things in depth, share more stories, share more examples. And so for me, it was an experiment. I thought, you know what? People want a podcast. I'm interested in the podcast format. So I decided to make a video podcast. So it still is my weekly main video on the YouTube channel, but it becomes an audio podcast as well, depending on how you like to enjoy the content. But the format truly is a podcast format, a long form and not edited or tightly edited at all. It's just me having a conversation as a monologue podcast. And I think that's been it's succeeded where I wanted it to in the sense that it's allowed my listeners to get a little deeper into a relationship with me. I guess the, the tightly edited video, there's still a little bit of a barrier. It's still much like somebody watching yeah. a performance as opposed to sitting and listening to somebody chat. I feel like people probably have an idea about what your podcast is about, but just in case they don't, what would you say your podcast is about? Yeah. Helping online business owners start or grow their online business um, while cutting back their work hours so they create more freedom in their life. How important is The Go-Giver to you? That's a book. And uh, what does that book mean to you? Yeah, that's probably one of my favorite all-time business books, Bob Berg and John David Mann. Um, it's such a short little read. You can read it in about an hour. It's written like a parable um, where you learn some lessons about business and selling and um, success. Uh, that book means a lot to me because m- the entire business model that I run is based around generosity. It only works if you give um, your best material away for free and you give tremendous amounts of your best material away for free consistently forever. And I, I've been doing that for years. And then when I read The Go-Giver, um, which funny story, I found it by accident because someone recommended a book called The Go-Getter which is really where the, you know, the phrase comes from, right? And I stumbled across The Go-Giver and I thought, well, that's a clever name for a book. And so I read that instead. <laughs> and uh, that book, it, it put into words through a beautiful story, the way I feel about business. And I, I felt understood while I read that book and for, I'm forever grateful for Bob Berg and John David Mann putting that together because it, it really does put muscle behind what I've been doing instinct, instinctively, which is, if you serve people powerfully and give without thought of receiving anything in return, you do receive and people are like drawn to you and they want to do business with you over somebody else, somebody else. And so, man, it's just been, it's a beautiful book. I recommend it all the time because I think it's just another way to show what business can look like when people think business is all about taking or uh, just having the largest audience possible or strategic sales copy. I mean, it's, it's audience and sales copy are like, so far off the radar of what really makes a real business, which is giving and serving people powerfully. And I will second that recommendation. It's a fantastic book for all of these listeners who maybe have not read it yet. Even if you're not into business, it's just a, uh, it's a great way to live your life. So definitely go and check that out if you haven't already. I'll probably have a link to that in my show notes. Who do you look up to in business or in podcasting or in in any area of your life that is important to you? And uh, why do you look up to them? Oh, man. I mean, that's a great question. Few people come to mind. Um, Ramit Sethi was one of those guys that I I followed for years. I will teach you to be rich. Yeah, I will teach you to be rich.com, growthlab.com. His his book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, the New York Times bestseller uh, on personal finance. But I followed him since 2006 when he was, he was, quote unquote, just a personal finance blogger before that was cool. And watching his evolution from blogging about money to blogging about entrepreneurship to then becoming a course creator, then really elevating his brand um, and, and watching his rise to like, okay, this guy is changing the way he even speaks about himself and presents like he's, he's becoming a real business. Uh, and then he wrote the book and became a bestseller. And I've really admired his vision for serving his students and becoming as legitimate of a business as he could. He could have kept it small and it would have been fine, but he's, he's been very influential in terms of like seeing what's possible um, I've been able to work with him closely as well. And I'd, I'd consider him a friend, but I, he and I don't have the same goals, but I've always admired what he's done with his business and his brand. And he's just been consistently putting out content since 2006. I mean, it's insane. 
uh, that's really the secret sauce is consistently delivering, whether it's blogging or YouTube, and he's got a podcast now. Yeah. Um, The guy just continues to show up. So that's impressive. Guys like David Bach, I, I love David Bach. He wrote The Automatic Millionaire. I've been following him for years as well. I love his his attitude and his spirit towards life. Also respect him. He he got burned out, kept publishing books, continuous New York Times bestseller. And he uh, he took a sabbatical because he was kind of just burning out. And he disappeared. He didn't tell anybody. Showing up on Good Morning America, he stopped blogging. He stopped emailing his list. He just disappeared for year and a half, two years. Literally, you could Google like what happened to David Bach and the people were <laughs> concerned, you know, And because I remember one day waking up and be like, hey, I haven't heard from that guy in a while. And, and he disappeared. Uh, and then he came back and and started to tell the world, hey, look, I burned out. And he was very honest about it. And, like, and I, I took 30 days off and then I slept for like 30 days. Like I was so <laughs> exhausted. And I realized I needed more time off. And he's he's been very candid about how he he that long 30-day break that he thought would be long turned into six months, turned into a year, year and a half. And now he lost a ton of weight. He his blood pressure went down. He got way more energy, got back to his why. Um, and he came back and then spent maybe four or five years um updating some of his best-selling books, um, building a new brand. And then he moved his family to Florence, Italy. Wow. Uh and now I think he's just going to stay there. And I think he's even just shutting things down. Like he's, he's really prioritized family and health and, and not constantly creating uh, the next product and being the next big thing. And it takes a lot of guts, man, because he's on top of the author space in that, in that space. I have a lot of respect for him. You could, uh, you could pick worse cities to move to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been, I've been to Florence. It is gorgeous. Likewise. Yeah. I love that. It's a beautiful city. I'm not actually familiar with him, but I'm going to have to check out some of his stuff. Automatic Millionaire. I'll have to pick a copy of that up. What is the value circle? How does that play into your podcast? Yeah. So the value circle is something I teach my students. It's something I, I write about in my book. It's, it's, kind of the, it's kind of my business model, right? So it's, you imagine there's a circle in front of you and, and it's the secret sauce to what makes my business spin. And it starts by... Um, giving value for free. And so for me and for us as podcasters, that's that's our podcast. If you have a video, you know, YouTube channel, it's your YouTube channel. If it's a blog, it's your blog. If it's just your emails, some people just send out daily or weekly emails to their list that are super valuable. They're like blog posts and an email. Like Rich Litvin does that. He just emails his list, like amazing content. Whatever it is that you're giving up free is the beginning of the value circle. The circle starts with you giving first instead of asking for a sale, Instead of asking for anything, you just give without asking for anything in return, give value. People go, wow, he or she really has a lot to offer here. They pay attention. Then there's the, the sale, right? So you give something valuable in exchange for money. It still has to be super valuable. So then somebody buys a product from you. It could be a course, could be membership, could be coaching, but you give a valuable product. So you don't phone it in. You don't have a crappy product. A lot of people are saying like, yeah, online courses, it's easy. You just slap together something and put it up for sale. Now you actually have to build something that's world-class and that like you've thought it out. Yeah. It's going to really help your niche. It doesn't have to be the most original thing in the world, but it has to be super valuable. It has to be geared towards your audience. So giving a killer product and something that you sell a valuable is the second part of the circle. And then you, you want to over-deliver. You always want to surprise and delight your customers. So what ways can you surprise them when they, when they buy something? Is there something you can sneak in there, a, a bonus video module? Can you give them a bonus product when they join? Is there some over-deliver even after this, the sale? So they're like, oh my gosh, it's like doing business with Graham. This is awesome. You know, they get a little sense of there's something great there. Uh, a good company that, that we're, we're probably both familiar with, Sweetwater, they sell yep. audio equipment, yep. right? They give you candy. You can yeah. open up the box of candy every time. My kids, even my kids know about Sweetwater because they give candy. And you have a personal sales rep that that constantly knows your name and reaches out to you. and Exactly. Like that over-deliver. Like when you do business with Sweetwater, you get more than just what you bought. That's the over-deliver piece of the circle. And then the fourth final piece of the circle is if you give at all three of those elements before the sale, during the sale, and after the sale, then the fourth element is what you receive. And that is two things, income, you make money. Uh, and then two, you get praise, word of mouth, referrals, and testimonials, which only help you spin the circle more and more and, and reach more people and sell more products. So it's it's really the 
what I teach is like what makes the business spin is value at all four elements, but really you're giving three of those parts of the circle and you receive in only one of those categories. But it's it's a beautiful model and it, it really summarizes how I view my business and how each part, the podcast, the YouTube channel, my products, all of that fit together. I think that this could be really inspirational for people who have a podcast or a YouTube channel that they're not necessarily monetizing or productizing at this point, but want to do so. If you go by the YouTube numbers that you can see on your YouTube channel, you know someone would never expect you to be making seven figures a year, right? Because the you have just under 30,000 subscribers. Your videos typically get between one to 2,000 views per video. And uh, in 2021, you've said that you had revenues over a million dollars, which is just incredible. And obviously, there's a lot more than just the size of your listenership that drives revenue numbers like that. But and I'm curious, how big is your podcast? Like, how, how many downloads or listens are you getting on average per episode? How many have you had since you launched? How big of an of a audience do you need or do you have to be able to do something like that to get that seven-figure year? Yeah. I mean, let's see. On the podcast side of things, I, I pulled up my data just recently because, I, to be honest, I never look at my podcast downloads. Okay. So I looked in the last 30 days, I have 18,000 some change downloads. So, you know, I do one episode a week. So it was looking like very similar to the YouTube channel, like about one to 2,000 downloads per new episode initially, right? When it drops. Mm -hmm. And then there's the downloads of other episodes happening in between. Long tail, right? So I have no idea. I'm assuming that's relatively small, but to to your point, I, I think... I think one, the audience is the most important thing. You, you have to have an audience. And obviously the, the bigger the audience can be better, but really the depth of your audience, how loyal they are and how tuned in they are is most important. Both would be great. A big, super loyal audience is great. But the size of your audience doesn't necessarily uh, like handcuff you to a certain income size because there's so many more variables. I have a much smaller audience from this brand than I do for the Recording Revolution by a factor of like 20. I think I have like 20x the size of a YouTube channel on the Recording Revolution. Wow. But I, I'm doing more revenue in this brand than the Recording Revolution right now. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why. It could be how you know how much I can charge for certain products. It could be uh, just the, 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 the loyalty of the people in this brand right now. I, I don't know. There's, but the great thing is, is there's a lot of ways to reach your income goals. Um, this is something I'm actually teaching in the five day challenge right now. Like I have friends who, who've hit six figures a year, let's say, uh, with only 14 customers, <laughs> you know, that's, that's incredible. Uh, there's a gal who's in my mastermind and she has an email list of 250 people and she's doing $30,000 a month. Wow. So you don't need a big audience to make good money. That's not always true. It just depends on what you're selling and how tight of a niche you have and how loyal your people are and uh, what you're willing to to offer. And so maybe if you want to just sell $97 courses, you might need a pretty big size audience. But there's a lot more you can sell than just a $97 course as well. How important is YouTube to your podcast? I mean, I know you post on the audio platforms and the video platforms. So do you, do you think YouTube is a key factor? Should people be posting on both? I 100% would. Yeah, because until Apple or, or whoever's got the, you know, the podcast app of choice creates yeah. more discoverability and searchability in the platform, like right now, Apple Podcasts is kind of a closed loop. Uh, but if it were really tied deeper into like Google search, and if there was a better way to be discovered on the platform, I mean, there are ways to be discovered. But if if it was better, I think then you could almost just rely on the podcast. But until then, I feel like if you do a podcast, either filming yourself doing it like I do um, and putting that on YouTube or taking the audio from your podcast and putting up some kind of graphics, I mean, something up there. I I think the video of yourself is going to be more compelling on YouTube because honestly, no one really wants to watch a static image of a podcast on YouTube. Some people do, but it's not as exciting. I think people want to see a face talking um, so even if you had to like jump cut your, your, your video and your podcast at the same time and, you know, you just export the audio out, I think that's powerful because YouTube is really the bread and butter of both of my businesses because it's, the, it's a giant discoverability engine. 
It's the world's second most visited website and second most used uh, search engine in the world. So next to Google. Um, so having a presence on YouTube is is huge. And the and I'm just trying to like overlap and do two things at once. So instead of making videos and a podcast, I'm like, I'm just going to do one thing and just put it on both platforms. And that's what I've done the last couple of years. It seems like it's worked out pretty well. Yeah. You just started a, a new series on your YouTube channel in anticipation of your new book, which is coming out, uh, called How to Become a New York Times Bestselling Author, where you are interviewing New York Times bestselling authors. So I'm curious what that has been like for you. Yeah. So this was a fun challenge that I had a friend of mine, Cliff Ravenscraft, challenged me to do this. So it was more of like a, a, a dare slash networking opportunity. Then the third component would be like some cool content for some of my my, my viewers and listeners. So with a book coming out, I, I obviously have a, a dream goal of becoming a New York Times bestselling author myself. Um, I thought it'd be like, what would it, it would be cool to interview some of my favorite New York Times bestselling authors and ask them about what it took for them to get there, what their experience was like. You know, was it something that surprised them? Was it something they were actively shooting for? What did they learn in the process? What does it mean to them? So yeah, it's been fun to interview some amazing people. Uh, and then what was great about it is, it, again, was a huge networking tool, being able to connect with some of those people, do an interview with them. And then I was able to get some endorsements from a handful of them as well for my own book. Uh, so it kind of became a bridge to like, hey, would you consider reading my book, endorsing it? I think you'd like it, that kind of thing. So for me, mission was accomplished just by connecting with some of my heroes. And then it's created some cool content as well. Yeah. On the uh, the connecting with the heroes point, yeah, your normal podcast is not an interview style. You're just you're you're teaching and you're educating and it's just you. So how did you go about making those connections with these people? Because I'm sure a lot of them are like you, very busy and and they have a lot of really important things that they're doing and working on and hopefully writing more books. So how did you how did you get that going? Honestly, yeah, just connections with other people. Uh it's really hard to reach some people directly. So I had and my friend Cliff, he knew Michael Hyatt and Dan Miller and was willing to like connect us and make the case that they should consider coming on the show. Um, I had a friend, Jordan Rayner, who had just interviewed John Acuff and Cal Newport on his podcast, and he was willing to make an introduction for me. And then I had one of my students in my mastermind is actually in, um, yeah, Walker, Jeff Walker. Sorry, it's funny because the my student's name is Walker also. They're both last names Walker, not related. <laughs> but he's in Jeff Walker's mastermind as well. So he reached out to Jeff and was like, hey, you should be on Graham's show. So it was all just connections of with people that I knew. Um, there were other people that had, had connections as well. And they reached out and those people either said no or uh, declined to come on. I, I even had some, some that haven't panned out yet, uh, but have agreed to come on the show, but we haven't pinned them down. Again, we're all through connections. So anytime you have a connection with somebody, it certainly helps because you get an introduction and people who are very busy are much more likely to say yes to someone who their friend says, Hey, you should check out this person's stuff. Consider going on the show. Sure. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Speaking of your book, how to get paid for what you know, it comes out March 22nd, which this episode is coming out March 9th, I believe. So a couple weeks from now, uh, as you're listening to this, the book will be coming out. Available everywhere, I assume? Yes, everywhere you buy books. What is your book about? It's all about how to start an online business, an information product business. It's the book I wish existed for me. It's the online business manual for people who don't view themselves as businessy or entrepreneurial. So anyone who knows anything about anything, and we all know stuff, valuable stuff, we all have experience or knowledge or a skill set around something. And it's the book that makes the case that now is the greatest time ever to be able to monetize what you know and shows them how to do that. I walk through the six steps of building this online business from literally coming up with your idea to launching to automating your, your product and everything in between. We deal with a lot of the the doubts and the, oh, this you know has already been done before, or I can't do this, or blah, 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 blah. We deal with all of that as well, the mindset stuff. But then it's, it's pretty didactic. It's a little bit of my story to show that, hey, if I can do it, you can do it. But it's mostly a didactic blueprint for how to like monetize your skills and your knowledge. And it's a real fun read, a real approachable, uh, and hopefully motivational so people read it and go take action and build a business. Yeah. I read the first couple chapters and, uh, you know, 
I don't know how much editing that they've done on what you wrote, but it seems like you're you're a natural at writing this nonfiction information stuff, which I guess would make sense since you've been, you know, educating people in various ways for over a decade. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks for uh, for reading. I, you know, what I was really scared about the editorial process. I've written thousands of blog posts, but I've never written a book, and so it was a very daunting task just from the format. Ah, it's the same thing. Yeah, and that's what people told me, but. I feel like I was able to do good work and then the editors really helped like rein it in. Um, but fortunately there wasn't a ton of like major rewrites for anything. So they, they told me it was a good job, good job done. So I'm, I'm pleased with it. That's awesome. I'm curious. So you went with a traditional publisher rather than self-publishing your book. And as someone who teaches people how to do things themselves and get out of the traditional nine to five work for someone else, corporate slog, kind of a life going self-published would feel almost more in line with that message. So why did you choose a traditional publisher? And what does the, uh, what does the traditional publisher give you that maybe self-publishing would not have? Yeah. Great question. So two part, the second part that you asked, what does it give you? The, the traditional publisher gives you, I mean, practically speaking distribution, like to get your book into Barnes and Noble, like you can't self-publish your book into Barnes and Noble very easily because they go to bat for you in physical stores. If you want your book to be in like the airport bookstores, things like that, you need a traditional publisher to basically, they sell to bookstores and say, hey, you need to carry this book. So that was one thing. I really wanted it to be everywhere, not just on Amazon. But two, uh, for me, there's two reasons why, right? Like one is, practically speaking, for your your very point, I do everything by myself and there's no... There's no uh, quality control other than myself. So I can publish whatever I want, whenever I want, and it is what it is. I felt like for something as daunting as a book, um, I really wanted other people to speak into it. I wanted professional editors. I wanted I wanted a whole team behind it to help me think through people that have that sell books for a living, that know what it takes to make a, a best-selling book to like guide me. And even the the content of the book to like read my proposal and say, you know what, we need to change the chapters, have this chapter. Have I wanted everything to not just be on me. I wanted input. I wanted to be on a team because I do everything by myself. And to me, this book going into the second reason why I went with the traditional publisher, this book is for me, a stepping stone to where I hope to evolve in my business and career, which is becoming more of a thought leader, author, speaker space, and reaching people that aren't going to pay attention to a guy on YouTube or pay attention to a podcaster. Um, being traditionally published gives you typically a lot of credibility in a space that's saturated by anybody who can write a book and publish it themselves. And because anybody can have a YouTube channel or a podcast and publish it themselves, self-publishing a book is no different. So I, I wanted to do something that would give me more credibility, that would get you know, media and other people to pay more attention to me because for whatever reason, if you have a published book that's signed off by a major publisher, some people will pay attention to you that wouldn't otherwise. And so for me, it was a way to open doors, hopefully, to a new set of audiences and, and new connections that maybe wouldn't have paid attention to me if I was just quote unquote, another YouTuber. I think that makes a lot of sense. I was just curious because I've, I'm also, you know, looking into publishing books at some point fiction more than nonfiction, but uh, yeah, I was just curious what your thought process was there. So you have the book, you have your YouTube channel, you obviously, you have courses, you have your community, you have your epic mastermind, the book's coming out, like I said, you're looking to get into speaking. Is there any, any other areas that you're thinking about branching out into? How far could you go with this? <laughs> Uh, total world domination? No, I, I don't know. <laughs> I think I think where I hope to go is is I would love to write more, be able to continually write thought provoking books that change people's lives, nonfiction, personal development. Um, whether it stays in the business space or moves beyond that, I'm open to whatever there. But being a thought leader, sharing ideas, and public speaking. I'd love to give a TED talk, all those kind of things. Like I, I feel like I love the energy of the stage. I love being in front of people and I love communicating and sharing and empowering people. It's what I've been doing even since 2009 with the recording revolution. It's just the, the niche and the, the area has changed, but it's the same desire. So I don't know what that looks like. It, it really, a lot of it depends on maybe how this book goes and maybe what happens in the next 12 months after the book release. Um, 
You need to start the Graham Cochran conference. Yeah, I know. I know, man. That would be... I'm not an event planner. So as long <laughs> as someone else plans it, I'm totally good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be awesome. I think that, uh, you know, I'm sure you could bring in some some really high level speakers in addition to yourself and, and have a great event there. Oh, I appreciate it. That'd be fun. Going back to your podcast a little bit. So you've covered this in detail on, on your podcast, specifically on episode 21, which I can link to in the show notes, how to map out a year's worth of content in one day. But for my listeners who may not already know, what what does your planning look like for content for your podcast? When and how do you do that? Yeah, I typically do it at the end of the year so that I have it in place before the new year. I like to plan out a year's worth of content in advance, right? So I think I've heard Sean Cannell say you've got um, your planned content and your demand content, right? So, um, or maybe it wasn't Sean, somebody said it, but it, that's basically how I function, right? I there's always going to be demand content, meaning your audience, they listen to an episode of your podcast and they go, oh, that was really great. Could you do an episode on blank? Or what about blank? So you're getting feedback from the comments, from emails, from listeners, whatever, that's giving you ideas for content. And you should always be paying attention and writing those down um, because they could make great content pieces. So that's sort of the demand content. And that's always growing and always coming in. And, but you want to have planned content. So you're not just winging it every week. Um, and so what I like to do to, for me to just to feel like a lot of peace and security, knowing that like, I'm going to have a great year of content. That's not only um, planned out. So I don't have to stress, but it's all also going to be organized and helpful because if you just wing it every week, you're just winging content and you don't know if the whole year is really where you wanted it to go. So what I like to do is map out my content in buckets or categories. Usually usually most content creators are going to have four or five categories. I call them content buckets that most of their content could fall into. You know, if you're a, a fitness instructor, you might have, you know, workout routine type content. You might have nutrition content. You might have um, products and, and, and tools that you can use for your home gym content. And you might have like motivational content for goal setting. I don't know, but whatever, if you could look at everything you ever talk about and boil it into four or five or six categories, those are your content buckets. And I like to think about those and give them names. And then let's say if I have five content buckets and I'm going to publish once a week and there's 52 weeks in a year, I basically need only 10 content ideas per bucket. That'll give me 50 content ideas. And that's almost a year's worth of content. It makes it easier when you break it down into categories. Yeah. And then what I like to do is, so I'll spend a day like trying to come up with all of that based off of last year's, you know, research of like what content did well, what people are interested in, what content I, I feel excited to talk about, what people are demanding. And if you map it out and then publish, you know, one piece of content from each bucket and rotate throughout week to week to week, like you'll have a steady stream of balanced content throughout the year. And then you've got your list of, you know, 50, 52 content ideas. You got your list of what your audience is interested in. And then when you show up to record, you just pull one from, from either of those lists. You don't have to do exactly the ones you planned because you've got demand content also, but at least you've got a year's worth planned out that you have a, a list to pull from and it makes it really easy. You can get in, hit record and go. How much thought are you putting into which topics you cover in conjunction with maybe which products you're promoting at that time? Are those two things linked at all? Yeah, great question. They are linked. I mean, the good news is that if if you're smart you're and you have products, your content should always be in in relation relative to your 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 products. So everything should be mapped out and be, be connected. I mean, if I if I'm gonna sell products on how to build an online business, it would make sense that my content is about building an online business and vice versa. So in general, they should overlap no matter what, but more specifically to your question, when I know I'm going to launch something, I'm going to make my public facing content um, really tightly related to that. So for example, kicking off this six figure coaching community, my membership, I'm opening the doors to that. And I'm doing a five day, six figure challenge. And when I'm announcing that on my YouTube channel or podcast, I'm doing a piece of content on 13 steps to reach a hundred thousand dollars a year in your business. So it's like, I specifically am pulling content. Hey, okay. For these couple of weeks, let's talk about making six figures because that's when I'm going to be launching the five day, six figure challenge. Mm. And when I'm going to be opening the doors to my six figure community. So that it all makes sense. So it's just being a little strategic and that's why it's nice to have a promotional calendar. Know like, hey, what products am I going to promote? You know that a year in advance as well so that you can tie in your content accordingly. 
You teach content marketing on your podcast, which is giving away fantastic content for free as a means to get attention, build an audience, and then from there, build out an email list. And you know, you've been very vocal about being anti-ad as a means to get that attention and, and recently anti-social media, it seems. So is there anything that you would do beyond creating consistent, high-quality content to drive growth and specifically to drive growth to a podcast, which historically have been difficult to find and share? How would you, if it's at all possible, try to supercharge or accelerate that growth? Yeah, great question. I think the, the fastest way to grow is to guest guest post or, or jump on other people's podcasts. So make friends, like connect with people, network. Um, that could either be on a blog, like you know, if you notice a gap in someone's content that you feel like you could create a piece for their their blog and for their audience that would be complementary to what they teach and they'd be willing to put it on their blog and link back to your, you know, your lead magnet or to your show or whatever. Um, collaborations on YouTube, if you do YouTube. Um, either way, like even if you don't have a podcast, getting on people's podcasts are great, right? Because podcast listeners, historically, from the data we can see, are some of the most loyal uh, content consumers. They'll listen all the way to the end. They take a massive action on recommendations from the podcast host. So I would like make it a point to get on as many people's podcasts, assuming they're rele- relevant podcasts, right? It doesn't have to be the exact same niche, but they could be relevant niches. Yeah. So for example, as the recording revolution, I, I was teaching musicians how to record music. It was more on the production side, the technical art of recording music. But I would try to get on people's podcasts that were songwriters, had a songwriter podcast or uh, just regular musicianship or growing your fan base. Like any of those are relevant because they're musicians listening and musicians need to record music too. So getting in front of people, guest posting is the best way to grow because you're basically um, hijacking someone else's pre-established audience and getting the the blessing, quote unquote, from that uh, podcast host or, or blog owner, which is, it's the best way to grow, honestly. Yeah, that's a, that's a great suggestion there. Thank you. The recording revolution is all about making the most of what you've got, not necessarily stressing about having expensive gear. So I'm curious, what is in your podcasting signal chain? What mic are you using? What does it plug into? What software are you using? Anything like that? Yeah. So these days it's pretty simple. Um, I'm using a Rode uh, Procaster microphone, um, just a dynamic microphone, plugged into the Rode uh, Rodecaster Pro mixer for my audio interface, which has been great. I've always wanted one, but I never really had a need for one until uh, until lately. So I got one of those. And so that acts as like the, the preamp. It has some basic like processing on it, a little bit of EQ compression and some um, harmonic exciter action. And then that goes straight into my Mac, into GarageBand of all places. <laughs> GarageBand's pretty good. I mean... Yeah. I didn't have Pro Tools installed, I think, when I got a new computer and I just had GarageBand. I just kept a like a, a profile of like the same settings on there. So I just haven't changed it. Yeah. Nice. Uh, your episodes that you record, you know, you, you speak very fluently and you speak really well on there. It seems like you rarely ever, ever as I do it, you rarely ever stumble over your words. Um, and it, it seems like your episodes are almost always shot in one take. So is that true? Do you do any editing on your episodes? And if not, how do you develop the skills to present like that? Yeah, I get asked this a lot. Um, it is all one take, uh, and that's by design. I didn't want to do any editing. <laughs> so I said, how about I just... <laughs> That'll save you time on the video editing side. Exactly. Yeah. How about I just get rid of the need for editing? So I just told myself not to screw up. No, I mean, <laughs> the, the secret The secret is threefold. Like one, like the, the, the not so fun secret is just practice, right? Like I've been communicating in front of a camera or on a microphone since 2009. So... Uh, it's something that I've developed over time. I'm much more comfortable speaking, but then also the more you sit with your subject matter, you just get really comfortable drawing things to mind quickly and having examples. So that comes over time. And that's the good news is that you do get better the more you do it. Even if you're not naturally a gifted communicator, it's actually something you can get better at simply by doing more of it. Um, but then on a practical level, I am working off notes and I let myself glance at my notes. If, if it was just an audio podcast, it'd be easier because no one could see it that I'm looking at notes. Yeah. Um, and if you wanted to, you could script it out. I don't like to work off of a script, but even on video, like I just let myself read my notes when I need to. And I don't care that I'm looking down at my screen 
Um, so I just allow myself the freedom to do that. And then I also allow myself the freedom to screw up and make it seem like it's okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I just kind of like trick the audience by like saying like, Hey, this is normal. Like, so if I flub my words, I just correct myself. Like if we, you and I were having a conversation, I'm like, wait, what I meant was this, you know? And so I, I've kind of changed the bar for me. I've lowered the bar and, and perfect is not really what I'm shooting for. Uh, I mean, in my mind I am, but I don't think I've ever had a perfect episode, but I, I, I come pretty close in that like, I can say what I mean to say. And as long as I have my notes in front of me, I can pick back up where I'm at. Um, there's only, there's been a couple of times where I'm sitting there, like there's an example or a person's name I wanted to share and it's not written down. And I'm literally trying to think of it. And I've just let myself keep that in the, the tape. Like I just, I'm like thinking, I'm thinking, wait, 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 what is it? What is it? And then I share it. And that's part of my, by design with this show was to have something that was truly authentic, not tightly edited and to let people in a little bit more on, you know, what a normal, like if Graham hit record and talked to you for 30 minutes this is what it would sound yeah. like. And I think people have embraced it. Yeah. It makes you seem, it makes you seem human for sure. Well, that's good because <laughs> I am one. Right. Right. Yeah. That came out weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said, you mentioned notes. How extensive are your notes? How imp Im important are they for your episodes? It seems like you need them to do your episodes. I do need them, but they're not very extensive. I mean, the, the, the least extensive notes will be just literally three bullet points. Um, sometimes it's just three words. Wow. Uh, that's the, probably the least extensive they've been. And then upwards of like one page of notes. Okay. Nothing usually more than that. Usually it's just, um, the great thing is usually I know, I know the material it's all in my head. Yeah. So it's the notes are like a, a trigger to remind myself, cover this, then this, then this. And if I have a very specific stat or quote, uh, or example that I know I want to share specifically, I'll copy and paste that and make sure that's in my notes document so I can reference that when I get there. Um, but that, and that's, that's usually what determines how extensive the notes are, but it's all, it's all stuff that I could speak to you off the top of my head about, but I wanted to be a little bit more organized. And so the notes help me there. Do you batch your episodes at all? How many in a week will you normally do if you do that? Yeah, not typically. I like to just do it one at a time. I've, I've done batching in the past, but these days I like to just do it, you know, a week in advance. Um, and it just helps my weeks look the same. And I, I really thrive off of routine. So I always know on Mondays I'm coming in, I'm recording my episodes. So, uh, but like if I'm going out of town, like, you know, for Christmas break, I took the last couple of weeks of the year off. So I batched, you know, I was doing two at a time for a couple of weeks. So I'd be covered, you know, through the new year. Um, I think this summer I'm going to take another month off. So I'm going to have to batch those episodes and I'm happy to do that. I usually, I usually can do two to three in a day, but I try not to do more than two because they're long episodes and my brain just gets foggy and I'm just, I'm more clear headed if I just do two at a day max. I know we're coming up on time and you have a hard stop soon. So I want to start wrapping things up a little bit, but what is one of the most important lessons that you've learned about podcasting or about yourself since you've started podcasting? What's, what's one thing that you wish you knew when you started your podcast that you know now? Oh gosh. Great question. Um, I think, I think when I started like not even podcasting, but doing YouTube videos and blog posts, I felt the need because of my deep insecurity about like, man, who am I to be like teaching people this subject? I, and even originally it was just audio recording. I, because of that deep insecurity, I felt the need to, to seem as credible as possible. And I probably err towards anything in the past. I would err toward taking myself too seriously and being like overly polished because I thought that that would help convey a sense of like professionalism. And, and while that is a good thing, um, I have slowly learned to relax and become more, a little more casual, a little more myself, like inserting more of my own humor or personal likes and dislikes, um, making fun of myself, making fun of other people, um, saying things that might get me into trouble, but things that I would probably actually say in real life anyway, if you're hanging out with me um, and letting people into my personality a bit more. I, I used to think people don't want to know my personality. They don't care. They're just here for the information. That's how I viewed it because that's actually how I view other content. I usually don't want to get to know the content creator. I just want to know the facts. And I misappropriated that personal bias to all people. Yeah. And I, I kept getting questions from people saying, Hey, like, 
that one time you shared that like you love donuts, like that was awesome. You know, I'm like, <laughs> what? Why do you care what I eat? So I, I've I've had to grow in, in like sharing more of who I am. And that's been a fun process for me. I wish I would have done it sooner because I think people would have been able to be led into my world a little bit more. But uh, it's been especially been refreshing to be able to just be myself a bit more. Yeah, that's a great takeaway. That's a, it's a great lesson to have learned. What else should we talk about? Did we miss anything that you wanted to cover? Where can, where can people find you? Where can they find your book? Where do you want to send people? Yeah, I would say the book is probably the, the most exciting thing I have going on right now. If, if you want to support me and check out what I'm doing, pick up the book. Um, you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever. There's details at grahamcochran.com slash book to get the book. But also if you get it wherever you get it, um, you can bring your receipt there and uh, enter it in and get a bunch of bonuses uh, from me as well, worth over a hundred bucks. So that'd be awesome. Give you some goodies there for checking out the book. And then, you know, the podcast and YouTube channel, the Graham Cochran Show podcast or Graham Cochran on YouTube. Check out any of the free content there every single week. Thank you. Graham, I, I really appreciate you coming on and speaking with me. This has been a lot of fun for me. Um, not going to lie, this is a, one of the episodes that I have been looking forward to and thinking about for a, a couple months now since you agreed to come on. So uh, it went by quick and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Chris, and best of luck with the show, man. Thank you. That was my conversation with Graham Cochran entrepreneur, business coach, musician, and soon-to-be-published author and host of the incredibly popular and influential podcast, The Graham Cochran Show, which can be found on all of the major podcast networks. You can also find Graham at grahamcochran.com or recordingrevolution.com. My name is Chris Cookley, and you can find me at whomakesapodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be an enormous help if you shared it with your friends or left a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It helps other podcast lovers find the show, and it really does make a difference. And if you host a podcast and would like to be my next guest on Who Makes a Podcast, let me know. Go to whomakesapodcast.com slash guest and tell me about your show. This is Who Makes a Podcast. I'll be back next time with another conversation with another incredible podcast host. Thanks for listening.